Folks, if you're listening and you're a fan of French-Canadian accents, boy, do I have a treat for you. And although I'll probably be the only one doing the accent, Dean, Megan, and Chance are, of course, welcome to try their hand at Canada's second funniest voice. How you doing, folks? No, we. Oh, mon dieu. I probably am not going to attempt, but yours all sound great. Good job, guys. Excellent. We from the master herself. Is, That's uh, right. It's 2022. We are turning over a new leaf. I know uh, this show has been attacked uh, by the far left uh, for being francophobic, uh, and we are we're putting an end to that today uh, with our uh, full-throated embrace of Quebec excellence. That's right. If anything, at the end of this episode, we're going to be francophilic. Let's hope that's the the only type of philic, however. Uh, Actually, this is one of the few episodes we'll do where there are no pedophiles involved. Wow. I know. At least none that I could spot from my research. Quebec is on its A game. That's right. They got rid of them all. Update our days without incident chart. Quebec drove all the pedophiles out like uh, the snakes from Ireland. (laughs) We have done multiple episodes on Quebec now and zero episodes on provinces like New Brunswick. So what's happening, guys? Uh, That being said, I did learn. Yeah, I would recommend (laughs) New Brunswick, uh, you know, do anything interesting besides, of course, having the semen retention guy. And also a mysterious brain illness which a friend of the pod tipped me off about. But that's for another day. Oh, I've let's, heard about that, yeah. Let's focus on our own brain illnesses by looking more deeply into Quebec. And yes, this is one of multiple episodes where we have touched on some significant events from Quebec's history. Of course, we talked about the Quebec Biker Wars in a three-part series, but now we're going to look more specifically at the history of Quebec separatism. Uh, Using the two referendums in 1980 and 1995 as kind of the focal points, but uh, as you're going to find out in just a second once I launch into this preamble, there's a lot more involved than just looking at those two dates and votes yeah this is like some real history folks this is before you would call any sort of separation uh, a quagsit exactly this is and we're gonna (laughs) you know what we can i want to keep in mind what wagsit is and compare it to the actual movement that was quebec nationalism and quebec separatism but before we can go back we need to put ourselves in a bit of a more recent uh chronological headspace on October 31st, 2021, Club Super Sex, a Montreal institution, burned to the ground. No! No! Opened in 1978 and remaining in operation for nearly 40 years, Club Super Sex was a gathering place for both Anglos and Francos alike. A surprisingly apolitical oasis in a time when the province, and one could argue the entire eastern side of the country, was locked in a fierce debate over Quebecois sovereignty. Now, the club closed in 2017, and that was unquestionably a sad moment, but it was its destruction in 2021 that marked the true end of an era, an era that was defined by the swelling of Quebecois pride, among other things. To understand the moment... Wait, Jesse, what were the other things? uh, Their penises. (laughs) Big, big fat laycock. Gotcha. (laughs) Uh, to understand the moment, we must cast our minds back past 1995, past 1980, even past 1978, past even 1867, for us to grasp the true enormity of the Quebecois identity and understand why this province is the way it is. We must go to the root of the conflict, which was the British conquest of New France. That's right. We're going back to 1760. That's right. We're beginning with phrenology, folks. Briefly. We really, if I'm honest with you, the first hundred years of Quebec's history are only interesting if you are a freak and that's your kind of thing. (laughs) Let's just, 1760, the British conquer New France. We see the immediate divide among lines of language, culture, and religion. So obviously French versus English, and also French Catholic versus English Protestantism and Anglicanism. In 1774, the British crown, uh, fearing that there could potentially be a revolution in Quebec like there was one brewing down in the soon-to-be United States, passed the Quebec Act which set procedures for governance of Quebec, allowed French civil law for private matters and English civil law for public matters. Prior to that, everything was done in 
with the English civil law and also replaced the oath of allegiance so that it no longer made reference to a Protestant faith and guaranteed free practice of Catholic faith. So they're trying to give them, you know, a little bit of slack, give them some things to be like, hey, you know, we're not that bad guys. Please do not uh, use your muskets or whatever they had in 1774 and kill us. Okay, yeah, Once some- again, the woke brigade participating <laughs> in identity politics. I have some basic questions here. New France. Was the hub like Quebec City? Quebec was City, it Montreal? Yeah. Okay, cool. No, Quebec City. Mo- Montreal, we're going to touch on when it really starts to explode in population. But as Dean read in an article, Quebec City was the cradle of French civilization in North America. And that is 100% accurate. <laughs> So 1791, we see the Constitutional Act, which divides Quebec into Lower and Upper Canada. Upper Canada sees a lot of English settlers who, of course, refuse to follow the French-Canadian customs uh, and systems of governance because they're like, fuck you. Uh, You lost. We won. I thought Upper and Lower Canada was Ontario and Quebec. I thought Ontario just was Upper Canada. Like, it was pretty much all considered, like... It was all New France, essentially, until this moment. This oh, is the real split. I see. Gotcha. So we have the Legislative Assembly of Lower Canada, which was more, and when I say, like, representational government, remember, the people that could vote were, like, landowners and men. Uh, you couldn't vote if you were a woman. You certainly couldn't vote if you were a freed slave, anything like that. So bear in mind, this isn't really, you know, actual representative democracy. But in comparison to the legislative council, which was all crown appointed, you kind of see these early political divides where it's like this side is nominally representing the people and the other side is entirely representing the British crown. There's a lot of political deadlock. Really, neither side is able to accomplish much. And that leads to what would become the Lower Canada Rebellion. So lots of boring early Canadian history here. Essentially, the Lower Canada Rebellion, uh, one of the key players is a man named Louis-Joseph Papineau, who was a leadership figure for the Revels. But he wasn't, you know, this harsh ideologue who extremely like embodied the Quebecois cause. He was pretty ambiguous on a lot of like the key issues and concerns amongst like the Anglo or the Francophone population, but he was just a really good military commander. There's also then a rebellion in 1838, like upper and lower Canada are completely fucked. Like (laughs) nothing is passed. Nobody is happy. Uh, It's a shitty time to be alive as you could imagine. Uh, things really start to kind of pick up through the 1840s and 50s. And in fact, in the, I believe, yeah, 1840s, uh, we would actually see upper Canadians going into lower Canada. So in modern day parlance, people from Ontario going into Quebec and burning down the parliament buildings in Montreal. Oh, Louise. Okay. Which would then, of course, lead to the seat of government being relocated to upper Canada, specifically Toronto, which doesn't really seem fair. <laughs> When you think about it. (laughs) Well, I guess if everybody in upper or lower, oh my God, which one is Ontario? Upper Canada. Upper Canada. Was just in control. And then everybody was like, okay, well, we're just going to burn down lower Canada. They'd be like, oh no, to stop this, we will simply take all the control. Thank you. Well, you have to remember too, like these are the, like probably the exact same people who burned down the White House like 10, 15 years earlier. It was fucking awesome. (laughs) So sick. Uh, So in 1854, the seigneurial system, which was, you know, think of like the habitant farmer, like this was their style of land governance, was completely abolished and replaced with the more traditional, as we know it, form of private land ownership. So once again, Quebec is like losing these key aspects of their culture and of the way that they had governed themselves. In 1864, there was the Quebec Conference, which of course, 1860s, we start to see a movement towards confederation. John A. MacDonald, one of the most despicable men in Canadian history, at least he did understand that like, oh, if we're going to do this, we should probably have Quebec on board, considering that at this time, it's still the most like populated area in Canada. So he ends up striking a deal with George Etienne Cartier, who signs off, and he's essentially Quebec's father of confederation. All right, meal break. Let's talk about the Quebec diet real quick. This is something that's going to pop up a few times. In the early days pre-conquest, it's mostly kind of your French cuisine staples, uh, pork, passenger pigeon. They love to put pigeons into pie, pigeon pie, tortière. Uh, That being said, the passenger pigeon would be hunted into extinction. So Sad. 
R.I.P. Yeah. Yeah. Messenger pigeons were once so common in North America that a flock would fly over your farm and it would blot out the sun for three days. <laughs> That's awesome. What? Yeah. I feel like I've heard that fact before, but I feel like every time I hear it, it's That's a new true. animal. But That's so sick. Uh, unfortunately, and also wine, of course, this is a French culture. Wine is still a huge part of French culture. But with the English conquest of New France, one of the first things they lost access to was wine because they did not have the crops and conditions to grow their own. They would have to end up growing ice wine, but they didn't have that know-how at the time, so they actually just didn't have French wine <laughs> in New France. That's hilarious. Conquest. Oh. So what did they do? They just, well, later on we'll see what their solution was, but at the time they just didn't have wine. Uh, so pie, like meat pies became a really popular thing uh kind of like salted meats and potatoes that was a big thing potatoes became the staple food in quebec post-conquest something that we can still see today well, i mean wow. some of the most famous dishes which we're going to talk about later traces its roots back specifically to yep. the british conquest okay let's talk about quebec from confederation to 1930. So 1867 to 1930. Megan, you mentioned Montreal earlier. Well, in this period post-Confederation, Montreal sees the most explosive growth yet. Uh, it becomes, well, it increases. It was Canada's largest city, but it grows even more so as we see an influx of rural French Canadians looking for work now that the seigneurial or land-based system was abolished. This is also something that was happening throughout the first Industrial Revolution as well in the 1830s, but it's really, really sped up once that seigneurial system is abolished and once Confederation is made official. So Montreal is growing at a rapid rate, but the thing that's outpacing it is the Catholic Church's influence over not just Montreal, but the province as a whole. Uh, the Catholic Church, famously evil. Just keep oh, that in mind. To, famously evil, the Catholic Church. They, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think we can all evil. agree the Catholic Church is evil. Uh, the church operated many of the province's institutions, including, of course, French-language schools, hospitals, and charitable organizations. Remember, at this time, there is no real concept of, like, social services. So this would be, like, poor houses, workhouses, and these were all controlled by the church. The conservative approach of the Catholic Church was a major force in Quebecois society and would be the major force for the better part of the next century. In 1885, the execution of Saskatchewan Métis rebel leader, the incredible Louis Riel, resulted in protests throughout Quebec as the French Canadians thought that they were being deliberately persecuted for their religion and language. Henri Mercier became the outspoken leader of the protest movement against uh, the crackdown of the Métis people. The federal cabinet members of the Quebec Conservative Party reluctantly supported Prime Minister Jean-A. MacDonald's decision to execute Rial, which then led to support for the Conservatives within Quebec to start to decrease. And remember, Quebec is ruled by a staunchly conservative Catholic church, but even they're starting to see this erosion of support with the execution of Louis Rial. And let's be realistic here. Most of the French Canadians weren't sad about Louis Riel because, you know, any kind of justifiable reason of like, oh, he's fighting with his people, he's standing up to this monstrous government and the encroachment of imperialism. No, they were upset because he's French. <laughs> so with this strong nationalist stance, Henri Mercier, very much a precursor of later nationalist premiers that Quebec would see in future decades, many of whom we'll talk about later. And he confronted the federal government directly and tried to win more power for Quebec. He promoted contacts with francophones in other parts of North America outside of Quebec. So he tried to create these like networks with uh, French settlers in Western Canada, especially New England, any kind of francophones that had not yet been assimilated into English, Canadian, or American culture to the extent they would be in the future. So he's trying to build this like French identity from Quebec and, like, build a broader coalition. He promoted reform, economic development, still Catholicism. He is a French Catholic and the French language, and he made a lot of enemies. He was returned to the legislature as a member for Bonaventure in 1890, but he would lose his election in 1892. I'd just like to mention him because he does set the mold uh, for this kind of French nationalist leader that we're going to see be filled by a lot of different guys, uh, especially into the 1960s, 80s, and 90s. <clears throat> All right, jumping forward a bit, 
World War One, something we've talked about a few times. Uh, famously, mm-hmm. the stupidest war to ever be contested. <laughs> uh, the Cousins War, the war the, that strictly the lovers existed war. for imperialist purposes. And I know, pretty much every war, the Lovers' War. Uh, real well, this was the fun now. soccer war. That's right. There was the soccer game uh, between, yeah, the Germans and... Everybody else. And Everybody to had a this day, time. we celebrate the heritage of World War One by killing each other in soccer stadiums around the world. <laughs> of course, without World War One, we wouldn't have Remembering Day, which we did a whole episode on. So let's talk about the conscription crisis. So towards the end of the First World War, despite the fact that Canada had promised not to uh, adopt conscription or, you know, <laughs> the forced drafting of Canadians to send overseas... As the crisis or as the war continued to like churn through men at a disgusting rate, they're like, oh, <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. Turns out we do need to draft you guys because we do not have enough people to fight otherwise. So most of English Canada, because it is an imperial conflict, mostly involving their British allies <laughs> and, you know, the homeland might, they, uh, they're in full, full support of this. But believe it or not, French Canada... The group of people that had been subjugated and conquered by the crown didn't really want to get involved in a conflict Mm -hmm. they felt they had no real stakes in. On January 1st, 1918, the Unionist government began to enforce the Military Service Act. This meant that now 404,000 men were now considered liable for military service, from which 385,000 sought an exemption, many of which would actually get that exemption. Just so you're aware, only about 20,000 people would end up being conscripted, and only about 4,000 of those would see actual duty because the war was over not long after this. I feel like, you know, French Canadians, I feel them, you don't want to go to World War One. You've heard a lot of bad things, not <laughs> ideal, but you get to see... Your people. homeland. That's true. That's true. Pretty good deal. Die yeah, in a trench, but you're in a trench in France. But Fun. remember, a lot of them are so... 1760 was <laughs> 150 years ago, so a lot of these guys don't really have any affiliation for the for yeah, like but, actual France. You know, just like I when I went to England, I was like, "It's England, cool." Did you, know, you feel in touch with? Your it could people? be like the same thing for them. Megan, were you willing and to being, kill people for? Yeah, it? being on exchange. And yeah, being I've heard at that war, before. Basically the same. Uh, okay, that's fair. <laughs> Every day is war when you're a woman. That's. <laughs> So true, bestie. Wow. And, uh, <laughs> I'll tell you one thing where there is a similarity between French Canada and, like, Parisian French. Uh, they, if you push them far yeah. enough, will just riot at the drop of a hat. Woo-hoo. Now, of course, in France, they're rioting currently for stuff like uh, carbon tax. If you try to increase the price of gas, they will kill you. Whereas at least the French Canadians, I think their reason was a lot more understandable. So... There is a lot of opposition to the Military Service Act and conscription. Of course, most of it centered in Quebec, where, quote, anti-war attitudes drawn from French-Canadian nationalism sparked a weekend of rioting between March 28th and April 1st, 1918. The disturbances began on a Thursday when Dominion police detained a French-Canadian man who had failed to present his draft exemption papers. Despite the man's release, an angry mob of nearly 200 descended upon the Saint-Roche district police station where the man had been held. So you've got a mob of 200 French Canadians holding like torches and pitchforks descending upon your police station. And uh, by the following Good Friday, an estimated 15,000 rioters had ransacked the conscription registration office as well as two pro-conscription newspapers within Quebec City. This escalation of violence, along with rumors of an alleged province-wide uprising, prompted Quebec City Mayor Henri-Edgar Leverieux to contact Ottawa and request reinforcements. Alarmed by the two days of rioting, uh, Prime Minister Borden invoked the War Measures Act. Huh. That's going to sound real familiar in a bit, which gave federal government power over Quebec City. So they could essentially deploy the military, do whatever they wanted in the name of maintaining order. March 29th, 780 federal soldiers are deployed in Quebec City with an additional 1,000 en route from Ontario and 3,000 from western provinces. March 30th, rioting continues. The next day, April 1st, federal troops, 
The vast majority from out of Quebec are ordered to fire into a crowd of quote-unquote rioters. Though the actual number of civilian casualties is debated, of course it is, official reports from that day name five men killed by gunfire, dozens more were injured, with uh, 32 soldiers recording injuries with no deaths. April 1st marked the end of what became known as the Easter Riot, which totaled over 150 casualties and at the time $300,000 in damage. That's a so, lot of people dead. Yeah, that well, it's five Think people about dead. The values. About 140 hurt, and yeah, like millions oh, of dollars. Oh, casualties just yeah, yeah, yeah. injured too. I was like, yeah. Jesus Christ, how have I never heard of this? Still insane. So yes, the severity exactly. and swiftness of Ottawa's response serves to demonstrate the determination to impose conscription and prevent what they called a national crisis. Uh, really what happened is the military crackdown furthered the divide between Quebec and the Crown and really became something that would stick in the craw of the Quebecois for years to come. And this is, let's remember, 1918. So this is just good to have this context when we move forward. That's like one year after 1917, the movie. Yeah, which was also about, oddly enough, French-Canadian nationalism. Yeah, It's very subtle, but (laughs) it's there if you know where to look. Uh, The worldwide Great Depression that began in 1929 hit Quebec hard. Uh, Exports, prices, profits, wages, of course, all plunge. Unemployment is over 30% in Quebec and even higher in lumber and mining districts. So, like, we're talking 50 to 60% in, like, timber and mine areas. Of course, there is no uh, any kind of federal aid at this time. We have R.B. Bennett in office. Remember, in our Mackenzie King episode, we talk about how he, towards the end of the Great Depression, would start to institute more kind of social reform and social welfare. But at the time, you got jack shit. And to make things worse, to (laughs) respond to the Great Depression, Quebec starts to shift even more rightward with its politics. Quebec's leaders note the glo- across the globe, the failures attributed to capitalism and democracy had led to the spread of socialism, totalitarianism, communism, and civil war. In fact, the Spanish Civil War alarmed all the devout Catholics who demanded that Canada keep out representatives of the anti-Catholic loyalist government of Spain. So there's a wave of clericalism and Quebec nationalism, which is the conservative reaction to the threat of uh, any kind of social reform or social welfare being instituted in the face of a global crisis Mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. is you know not good Mm -hmm. (laughs) the best way to combat the rising tide of disenchantment is not to offer a better more humane society uh but to really smash the right-wing uh reactionary button which we're also seeing today historically goes really really well yay Let's take a bit of a meal break, and we can do a Quebec culture update while we're at it as well. Let's talk about some of the foods that the Quebecois like to eat at this time. Uh, Ployer, which is wheat cakes. They're really good. A friend of mine is Acadian and has made the Acadian wheat cakes for me, and they are very tasty. Uh, It wouldn't be Quebec Uh if they they didn't have (laughs) something... I don't know if racist is the right term, but a questionable culturally named dish. Off color. One of the most popular meals in uh, Quebec during the Great Depression was something known as pâté chinois. (laughs) Hell yeah. pie. Oh, wowzers. (laughs) When I read that, it made me uncomfortable. Here's what's involved. The dish is made with layered ground beef, sometimes mixed with sautéed diced onions on the bottom layer, canned corn, Uh either whole corn oil, or creamed for the middle layer and mashed potatoes on top. That's Seasonings. literally shepherd's pie. What the yes, heck? it is exactly shepherd's pie with a slight <laughs> variation that you can also add diced bell peppers and serve the dish with pickled eggs or beets and ketchup. What's that have to do with China? <laughs> okay, I've yeah, been I don't think I get myself. it. <laughs> I, there is no explanation as to why this is called Chinese pie. <laughs> It, like, there's it, nothing... it doesn't even make sense that, like, Chinese immigrants would have, like, had any say in this dish because it doesn't sound no. like any types of food that are like, from China or were regularly no. eaten. Like, mashed potatoes Maybe did not give me things, Chinese vibes. But that was also know. very much like a Western. No. Well, you, yeah. you say that. But, like, well, think about, like, Mandarin, like, has <laughs> That's mashed so potatoes. True. They have all sorts That's of different kind of food. So. They do. They have they so call many it, kinds of food. <laughs> they call it Quebec pie there, though. I don't know. I don't really get it. Yeah. <laughs> There's something going on. But yes, that Chinese no pie. Sense. Which, when I saw that, I uh, 
instantly straightened up in my chair and did like a comical spit take. I was like, uh-oh, this cannot be good. Uh, if you are listening to this and you know why it was called Chinese Pie, please message the Instagram page. We would genuinely like to know. Uh, and if it's a racist it thing, says here that it came from say, Chinese immigrants hey, making do with ingredients from their environment in Quebec. So there you go. Okay. No. So it's, not not racist then. That's good. well. Well, <laughs> this is from Ali Boo. I, I trust. Say Ali no Boo. to that. Well, we it, call things French French toast. I feel like just also, calling something Chinese something is it just implying where it comes from. But given the history, more maybe more modern Quebec has with other cultures, I still can't help but be put on edge. That's fair. They also have pudding chômeur, or the poor man's pudding, which actually sounds pretty good. It's a basic cake batter onto which hot syrup or caramel is poured before baking. The cake then rises through the liquid, which settles at the bottom of the pan, mixing with the batter and creating a distinct layer at the bottom of the dish. The syrup or caramel can be made from brown sugar, white sugar, maple syrup, combination of. During the worst of the Depression, stale bread was used. Yeah, it does sound pretty good. Which also sounds pretty good. Mm Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we start to see the early uh, influx of, you know, Jewish influence on cuisine, Mm. Montreal smoked Mm. meat, lox, bagels, stuff that still persists to this very day and is still excellent and very, very good. Literally every good dish is, like, made by Jewish immigrants. I swear to goodness. I read something last week that fish and chips was invented by Jewish immigrants. It is pretty crazy. I didn't know that. Isn't that crazy? You think think the English being around fish all the time would have figured that one out. I know, and they love to deep fry stuff. Yeah, no, they can't put two and two together. The English were also born without taste buds. (laughs) Uh, Dean, any notes on Quebecois culture before we? Yeah, I would. I would love to fill you in because I I did a lot of research, uh, probably a lot more than you did uh, for this. So, uh, just like one little fact, just a little teaser. I learned uh, recently the Quebecois, they actually were originally Israelites, (laughs) uh, and they were transported to the New World by Christ after It was the storm. Okay. Oh. Interesting. How did they get them over? That was the storm. Yeah. (gasps) That was the storm? That's what Q Q has been talking about. Q stands for Quebecois. Quebecois. Okay. Yeah. That's cool. I can respect that. That makes a lot of sense as well. Uh, except in the inverse of Israel, uh, the Quebecois lost a lot of their land as opposed to took it from the people that were rightful. Well, I guess they did take it from the people that were rightfully there. Yeah, Never mind. see? Yeah. It really does make sense. It really, yeah. It, it all figures. Like, uh, Q talks about JFK Jr. Uh, coming back. But, like, you have to understand that that's just, that's a scramble. And if you actually decode that anagram and you have your, uh, you know... Mm-hmm. Little Orphan Annie decoder ring on you. Uh, mm-hmm. JFK <gasps> Jr. FLQ Jr. See, I thought it was in reference to uh, former. I thought it was going to be JFK was a like a oh was going to mean co- Jews from King. <laughs> oh, Jews from Kenya. Jesus <laughs> friend Christ. That's, yeah, that's a, that's actually cr- what it is. Jesus was oh. French Canadian, but Canadian is spelled with a K. Okay. <laughs> Whoa. So the K, yeah, that's right. Uh, I don't know we why they want the code. I don't know why they want me to make so many fishes. Uh, however, uh, I love to turn waters into wines. That is uh, very much very good. Uh, Plumon. Plumon. Yeah. yeah. So uh, Jesus was hanging out at Club Super Sex constantly. Could Jesus invent a stripper's ass so big even he could not fit money into the G-string? We should move on. Wait, why? <laughs> now so, we're just going to get comments that were like against Christ or something. So That'd be cool. So 1930s Quebec. Uh, to say that it's a bad time puts things lightly. The conservative fears of the encroaching hand of socialism and communism leads to a far-right backlash that helps play a role in the election of Maurice Duplessis and the Union Nationale Party in 1935. So in 1933, Duplessis, then the leader of the Quebec Conservative Party, uh, wooed disgruntled reform liberals and Quebec nationalists who had become disillusioned with the arch-conservative liberal government to create the Union Nationale. So this is a coalition party comprised of yes, old stock conservatives, uh, disaffected liberals, and oh, hardline yeah. Quebec nationalists. And once 
they obtain power, Quebec enters into a period known as the Great Darkness. I remember Uh-oh. reading that on the Wikipedia page and being like, oh my goodness, sounds bad. So just keep in mind that Duplessis and the Union Nationale presided over the Great Darkness when we talk about them a little bit later on in the story. So the Duplessis regime was considered regressive and corrupt in terms of governance and development, even for an already corrupt period of Quebec's history. These guys are like Tammany Hall levels of corrupt. And I've actually compiled a list of uh, Duplessis and oh, Union yeah. Nationale's greatest hits from this time. Yay! So, formed during the Great Depression of the 1930s and after 39 years of liberal government, the Union Nationale initially advocated social, economic, and political reform. However, in 1936, the Union Nationale would abandon their tentpole uh, promise of nationalizing huh. hydroelectricity. So... <laughs> Within a year of being elected, one of the biggest things that they ran on of saying, like, we are going to uh, nationalize, like, our our electricity is ours. We're going to take over and make a truly, like, essentially crown corporation. Uh, they abandoned that in favor of privatization, which I'll tell you about in just a little bit. The yeah, one good thing. Crazy. Governments the, would never. Sad. I know. The one good thing they do is increase the minimum wage, but, like, by a few cents. Not great. They also commissioned numerous public works projects. So there is like a populist bent to some of the early things that they propose. So it seems good on paper, but let's remember something. If we think back to the Quebec Biker War, you will remember that the Quebec construction industry was and mm-hmm. still is insanely corrupt. And that run was true. By gangs. Woo. Literally run by the mob. And that was true even in the 1930s. <laughs> Those so, were the cool mob people. Exactly. Those were the back when, yeah, men had class, <laughs> not swag. Uh, Duplessis was also an extreme anti-unionist and was one of the most notorious and virulent uh. strike breakers in the history of Canada. Boo! He presided over uh, the destruction of strikes for Naranda, Asbestos, and most famously Murdochville. So Murdochville was a mining town, and the company that owned the mine refused to recognize the miners' union. They were known as the Metallos, and they were affiliated with the Quebec Federation of Labor. More on them later. Uh, So Duplessis uses strike breakers and provincial police to, of course, crack down on the strike, subdue, arrest, injure, and maim dozens of striking miners, eventually crushing the strike and really more or less neutering that union altogether. He also cracked down on numerous civil liberties. Surprise, surprise. The most famous piece of legislation he passed was the Padlock Act, also known as the Act Respecting Communistic Propaganda, which, hey, respecting communist propaganda, that's what we do. I respect that every single day. (laughs) So it was a 1937 Quebec statute empowering the attorney general to close for one year any building used for, quote, propagating communism or Bolshevism. So if you were handing out flyers or if they suspected that, like, a flyer saying, hey, you should unionize was printed at a building or distributed from a building. turn off the lights and lock the doors or something? They literally put a padlock on the door. And you can only uh, have that building opened if you can prove that it hasn't been used to spread (laughs) propaganda for at least one year. Okay, way to – this is a perfect plan. You hate your job. Use the printer print out one thing with, like, Marx's face on it. Just leave it there. They lock your office forever. Now you don't have to go to work. So I found this really funny. Uh, This was ruled unconstitutional in 1957, (laughs) 20 years after it had been used. (laughs) But even, like, the fact that it was ruled, uh, like, against in 1957, like, the height of Red Scare, that's crazy. It's still funny, though. It's like, thank you for the prompt work, guys. I'm really glad that you managed to uh, get this law struck down after 20 years. (laughs) Well done. Uh, This one, to me, is the funniest because it's just extremely petty and also insane Catholic brain. So in 1946, Duplessis, then premier and attorney general, so he was both the premier and, like, the main lawmaker, caused the Liquor Commission chairman to revoke a liquor license for Frank Ron Corelli, a Montreal restaurant owner, which, of course, then ruined the restaurant. Ron Corelli was innocent of all misconduct, but the authorities thought him troublesome because he legitimately provided bail for many Jehovah's Witnesses charged, groundlessly as the Supreme Court later held, with supposed offenses resulting from the distribution of religious pamphlets. So 
they were, in the words of like the mm. prosecutors, attacking Roman Catholicism. So they would just be locked up for essentially practicing their religion and invo- engaging in anti-Catholic action. Mm. So Ron Carelli would, of course, provide bail to get these people out of jail, somewhere they should have never been in the first place. And as a response to that, Duplessis, who, of course, once again, is working mm-hmm. closely with the Catholics and is a Catholic himself, just cracks down and ruins this guy's life. The Supreme Court in 1959 held that the premier had committed a civil wrong and ordered him to personally pay damages. The damages were far below what Ron Corelli had lost when his restaurant was shuttered. (laughs) Oof is what I have to say to that one. One more quote for you. (laughs) Corruption and patronage reached legendary proportions for uh, Quebec at this time. But this is and this one came from the Canadian like encyclopedia and there was some interesting editorializing here. Yet Duplessis presided over a period of unprecedented prosperity, economic growth, and investment in which Quebec was the first was for the first time by almost any social or economic yardstick gaining in Ontario. Uh, the question being prosperity for who? Certainly not for the working class or the union workers who were completely brought under heel. Certainly not for anyone who was not a part of the Catholic religious majority. This entire article to me felt like it was written by like <laughs> Duplessis' personal biography. <laughs> I thought that was insane. To follow up a sentence of corruption and patronage reached legendary proportions with but Quebec was doing really well is so funny. <laughs> yeah. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> They're saying it's it's okay sometimes if you, you know, try your best but you also do love money. You yeah. Know? Sometimes corruption's okay but only... If you spend the money on cool shit. You want to hear some good news? Maurice Duplessis would die in 1959, tanking the Union Nationale, not completely destroying them, but certainly knocking them out of power. So his successor, a man named Paul Sauvé, would run as the leader of the party in the 1960 Quebec general election against Jean Lesage and the Liberal Party. Speaking of... The election of Jean Lesage in the Liberal Party marked the start of what Mm -hmm. became known as Quebec's Quiet Revolution. Under Lesage, the Liberal Party developed a coherent and wide-ranging social reform platform. The main issue of the election was indicated by the Liberal slogan, It's Time for a Change. And I've once again got a quick hit of what Lesage and the Liberals accomplished in their first couple years in office. First, the establishment of a public hospital system. So not just religiously run, an actual public social health care system. They created a Ministry of Cultural Affairs and a Ministry of Provincial Federal Relations to deal with Ottawa. They created the General Investment Corporation, which would play a big role in creation of the Quebec Pension Plan. They limited authorized expenditures during election periods, so you could only – essentially in the past, you could just write anything off as like an an expenditure for the election, which is what Duplessis would do all the time. Remember the extremely corrupt patronage uh, machine they had set up? Lesage and the Liberals lowered the voting age from 21 to 18. And from 1960 to 1966, the budget grew for infrastructure and social spending from $745 million to $2.1 billion. So they are investing in Quebec and in the people. We also see sweeping education reforms. Quebec at this time had by far the worst education system in Canada, like laughably bad. Uh, It saw the Parent Report, which essentially recommended the creation of a Department of Education, uh, said, hey, you should really lessen the Catholic control over the public school system, Uh, made all of these changes that actually modernized Quebec's education. In 1964, I feel like a big yeah, history of Canada is just like don't let the Catholic Church do or run anything because they can't yeah. do it, and it ends up being, if not evil. <laughs> yeah, they're not very good stupid, at running a country. So. Yes, and it's famously, yeah, it's it's gone very poorly. I mean, Vatican City, they're holding it together. They have their little country there. That's like 45 feet long. Though. <laughs> if you can live in an apartment, you could run Vatican City. In 1964, the Liberal Party introduced three major pieces of legislation, which included a revision of the Labor Code, Bill 16, which abolished a married woman's judicial restrictions by which her legal status was that of a minor. So prior to this, a married woman was essentially deemed a dependent for her husband and had legal status of a minor. 
Oh, lovely. And, That's uh, awesome. They what created year a was pension this? plan. <laughs> 1964. Cool. <laughs> Normal. Most notably, the Catholic Church's role in society diminished greatly, and we saw prosperity for French-speaking Quebecois grow as a nationalist consciousness expanded. So all of this is accomplished within about five and a half years by the Quebec Liberal Party, okay? Keep this in mind. The next general election is slated for 1966. Before we can even get to this election, the Liberal Party pulls out their masterstroke, the thing that would be the most consequential of maybe any of the policy of decisions they made, which was, it was the nationalization mm. of Hydro-Quebec. Woo! I so, got one. Hydro-Quebec was created in 1944 by Duplessis, and famously, he gave up on any attempt to nationalize it and was like, yeah, it's fine. Just leave it as it is. Hydro-Quebec would become one of the largest crown corporations in North America once nationalized. And it led to massive increases in, you know, the jo in jobs. Uh, they actually had control over their own natural resources, which, okay. wow, wouldn't will, that be nice? I will step in here, like, you know, the whole who's natural resources thing because yeah. Hydro-Quebec did then immediately go to James Bay and be like, we're going to fuck all your shit up. And then yeah. it created like a still ongoing, but like at least 30 year like battle between the James Bay Cree and Hydro-Quebec. And Hydro-Quebec is not a pleasant organization, I will say. No, of course. <laughs> but, you know, so. nationalization is good, but like, you know, also respecting indigenous land and rights is also good. So, And this was proposed... Like, the nationalization was proposed by René Levesque, who was a minister of natural resources, and they, they actually put it to essentially a referendum with 56% of the Quebecois people voting for the Liberal Party and for this platform of nationalization. So they, they essentially get, like, an additional little victory along the way, and they're, they're, puddling, they're puttering along. Uh, the Liberal Party's other slogan was that they wanted to make Quebec masters in, in their own house, which, of course, these policies of wanting to control Quebec really ran counter to the federal government, which also wanted to control Quebec. Uh, so we do start to see an increase in tension between provincial and federal governments. Quebec at this time also starts to pursue getting diplomatic ties with... Uh, Paris, London, and New York trying to build essentially like embassies in each of those major cities, which is such a funny thing to do. Very big dick move to be like, yes, we are going to have our own embassy in New York City or Quebec. <laughs> That's so cool. It's like, what kind of con the two funniest accents <laughs> interacting with one another? <laughs> It's like a Dana Carvey scene. Yeah, that, they would go to war over their bagels almost instantly. Exactly. And Ottawa, knowing that they could not survive the bagel war, intervened <laughs> and said that there could, quote, only be one interlocutor with foreign countries, and it was not <laughs> going to be Quebec. <laughs> That's so funny. So in 1965, the Royal Commission on Bilingualism and Biculturalism noted that Canada, quote, without being fully conscious of the fact, is passing through the greatest crisis in its history. The source of this crisis lies in the province of Quebec, which was drifting farther from the, quote, Canadian state and closer to the concept of French-Canadian nationalism, which was rapidly building momentum. Separatist groups began to prop up throughout the province, including most famously in 1963, the FLQ. 1965 also marked the year that uh, a young man by the name of Pierre Elliott Trudeau would join the Federal Liberal Party in Parliament. And essentially, he was tasked with being the Quebec guy. They're like, this is your thing. We need your help. And he was there to help out the Quebec Liberals in the 1966 provincial election. One that, of course, the Liberals thought they would win, given that they'd spent the last five years uh, basically saving Quebec. <laughs> Like, all the shit they did, the pension plan, nationalization, education reform, healthcare reform, they're like, yeah, we got this, right? Well, the Union Nationale, led by Daniel Johnson Sr., would return to provincial prominence for the first time by attracting, get this, disaffected conservative, nationalist, and liberal voters. Ah, shut. The Union Nationale would win 56 seats against the Liberals' 50. Although they lost the popular vote by 6%, they had retaken control of Quebec. That is actually so. so funny. Like, you work so hard. You literally, like, build a province from the ground up, and then everyone's like, oh, I don't actually care. Please die. Like, it's such a funny they choice. They got, like, basically cooked. That's funny. 
It's oh. like, do we vote for the party that led us out of the great darkness and spark <laughs> the quiet revolution, or do we vote for the party who brought us into the great darkness? Also, uh, like, I guess respect to the Quebecois people. They were like, you did it. Job well done. I don't need you anymore. Goodbye. Uh, don't let there. the door itch you on the ass on the way out. <laughs> exactly. So in Ottawa... The federal government under the newly elected Pierre Elliott Trudeau proposed a two-pronged solution to the, quote, Quebec problem. They were going to table federal bilingualism, uh, which was going to come in the form of the Official Languages Act and the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Now, the Official Languages Act wasn't passed until 1969, and the Charter of Rights and Freedoms wouldn't see royal assent until 1982. So not only was it too little, it was also too late, as Quebec's quiet revolution gave way to a loud, calamitous crisis. But before we get there, (laughs) let's stop for a meal break. This one is focused on perhaps the most famous Quebecois dishes. These are things you might actually recognize, starting with the pain a sandwich or the oh, bread loaf yeah, yeah. sandwich. Bread sandwich, and baby. And here's what's involved. <laughs> Chance knows. Chicken salad. In a bowl, combine all ingredients until creamy. Season with salt and pepper. Cover and refrigerate. Egg salad. In a large bowl, mash the eggs with a fork. Add the mayonnaise and combine while crushing until creamy. Season with salt and pepper. Cover and refrigerate. Ham salad. Oh, I'm In a bowl. I like this. <laughs> combine all the ingredients. Season with salt and pepper. Cover and mm-hmm. refrigerate. Okay, so that's the ingredients. Spread half the chicken salad on the first slice of bread. Cover with a second slice of bread. Spread half of the egg salad and cover with a slice of bread. Continue with the ham salad. Repeat with remaining bread and salads to obtain six layers. Finish with a slice of bread. Press lightly. With a bread knife, gently remove the crust to neatly square off the sandwich. Cover with a layer of cheese spread. Oh! Plastic wrap. Oh my god, it could have been edible until that. That's unfortunate. If needed, refrigerate for at least two hours. That's my favorite part, is that it it just has to sit and everything has to, like, melt. (laughs) Yeah, that's gross. Like, why would you want it touching the bread in the fridge for two hours? Folks, if you're listening at home, please look up uh, bread sandwich on Google Images. How to order a decent-tasting meal from a restaurant, then come home, leave it on the counter... It all night, and then the mm. next day, dip it in cheese whiz I'm and sorry. eat it. Like, <laughs> this is French cuisine. This is high um, culture. Oh my it's so goodness. awesome. There is then also, of course, poutine, which still a Quebec staple. Everybody loves poutine. It's great. Uh, Megan, have you oh. ever heard of Pizza Getty? Uh, I wish I hadn't. I have now that you've said it out loud, so thanks. Pizza Getty is another specifically <laughs> Montreal staple, uh, which is just spaghetti either and pizza like on the same dish sometimes it's spaghetti under a layer of cheese on the pizza <laughs> yeah that's and like somet- actually just like why literally why would you invent and that sometimes it's spaghetti like on top of the pizza so you've got a couple different styles of pizza game. okay but like sure make a whack-ass sandwich and cover it in cheese like you do you but pizza and spaghetti are really good by themselves and not usually things you need to innovate and it's just like so much carbs at that point it would just like you would be hiding all of the other flavors genuinely uh are are you folks familiar with the concept of no narakaloka no uh so in hindu mythologies uh there are oh, okay <laughs> a lot of different kinds of hell uh and you'll be sent to these different hells depending on you know the sins that you have committed uh and one of the worst is refusing food to a starving man. Uh, and if you do this, you are sent to Narakaloka, where uh, it's this pit full of 10,000 worms. Ah. You are one of the worms, and you cannot leave the pit until you eat and have been eaten by every worm in the pit. And that is what I imagine Pizza Getty <laughs> Who up getting eaten by they worm? <laughs> I, I feel like Quebec's food... Um, I drive to Quebec along the highway. Uh, when you're in Quebec, there starts to be a lot of Chester's chickens. That's really all I know. Yeah. Or and is it Chester chicken or is it like it's a well, chicken restaurant? What the heck Saint, is it called? Saint Hubert. Saint Hubert. That's right. Oh my god. Which gosh. also started to pop up throughout Quebec in the 60s and 70s. 
Uh, Pizza Getty, I will say, if you think about it, drinking, obviously, big part of Montreal culture, a lot of pubs, a lot of clubs. If you're, like, absolutely smashed, you need those carbs. What better way to, like, sober yourself up than to get pizza and No, yeah, pizza, pizza Getty actually sounds sick, not going to lie to you. I am, I'm totally into this. Once pizza again, it's already perfect. It, de- it definitely sounds sick in that it's what are you like talking about? Someone has thrown up. Yeah. At, at some of my fattest, I have had Pizza Getty. It's There's funny. vomit on his sweater already. Pizza Getty. This, would, is the, uh, <laughs> yeah. this is the rest of the episode. I, w- I would share more like Quebec cuisine I've eaten, but every time I go to Quebec, it takes like 45,000 years to get a table, and then your food doesn't come for like six hours. So, yeah, really, so- I've had very limited food when I go. <laughs> Quebec, like the worst, usually like, grumpy. The waiters in Quebec. I don't know if you guys know this, but like the waiters, like they get a wage even if you don't. Yeah, that's get weird. Them. Yeah, it's fucked up. Is all I'm saying. I know. It's true. Uh, another very yes. big popular thing, pickled, beets, pickled beets, which I personally also love. Pickled beets go fucking crazy. And then caribou, which is a drink made from red wine, a spirit. And maple syrup. Oh, that sounds That's so good. Fucked up. That sounds yummy. <laughs> caribou it sounds great. For, it it for sounds me? like it, like yeah. That's how you get fucked up very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> Have you you're you're had- cutting <laughs> liquor with red wine <laughs> and maple syrup. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to part one in our deep dive on not just Quebec's referendums on nationalism, but it turns out a cultural history of Quebec itself. You've gotten all the cultural and historical information you need to understand the coming storm that is Quebecanon, a.k.a. Quebec nationalism, starting from its roots of the British conquest in 1760, moving as the French culture quite literally fought for survival against the English overlords. Uh, A sense of national pride and nationalism begins to form, of course buttressed only further by growing right-wing political beliefs in the face of the Great Depression, which the levy eventually gives way, and we do see this period of liberalization, but it immediately snaps back into conservative rule throughout the end of the 1960s, which of course leads to what is probably the most famous set of historical events in Quebec's history, the October Crisis. But more on that next week.